Hello and welcome to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast at the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today we have our guest, Naomi Ulmer, who is going to be talking about some very interesting things, especially her specific research interest. Welcome to the show, Naomi. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. So um, why don't you give us a little bit of background on your research topics and just your education in general? Yeah. So uh, again, thanks for having me. I'm an agricultural and public historian uh, by training. So I have an undergraduate degree from Penn State just in regular history as well as an anthropology degree and uh, with the focus on cultural anthropology. And then I went on to get a master's degree in public history and I could choose whatever research you know I wanted for my thesis, and I chose to write about agricultural improvement in American agriculture. So from about the 1780s to the 1870s. So basically, agricultural improvement, and I like to learn and study about agriculture all throughout time. If it's 10,000 years ago or so when folks started farming. Uh, and cultivating plants on purpose, and as well as uh, shepherding animals, or if it's today, um, and the latest ag topics, that's what I'm passionate about. And one of the things is that you didn't say you grew up on a farm. Oh, right? yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, I grew up on a dairy farm and a vegetable farm, so I spent many hours doing lots of grunt work. But I enjoy, I enjoy doing physical labor, and I find it very satisfying to take care of plants and animals and help feed everybody, feed the planet. All right. So the topic that you are picking on is um, agricultural improvements. And you said from 1780 all the way up to 1870. Is this the time period that a lot of historians call an agricultural revolution? Yes. Uh, especially more specifically, the agricultural revolution in the United States. Um, countries, European countries like England, France, and Germany, they sort of started the agricultural improvement revolution a little bit before the United States. So, like, for example, you have uh, people like uh, Jethro Tull. He was an Englishman, and he was doing agricultural improvement stuff in the early 1800s. So when you say agricultural improvement, what exactly do you mean? Are we talking machinery? Are we talking methodology? What are you actually talking about? Good question. Sorry, I get really excited. So, so like one of the first, for example, first agriculture revolutions, you know, started 10, 15,000 years ago again, when hunter-gatherers, you know, transitioned to agriculture. So selecting the best and biggest seeds to have more food to save. Or, for example, in uh, Mesoamerica, that could be some of the oldest corn that we've ever found archaeologically is like seven to 8,000 years old. People took a little grain of grass, and it's, it's grains, it's, it's the earliest years of corn were about as big as your pinky. Now they're, they're quite big. Um, so that's about 7,000 years of agriculture. Uh, but the agricultural revolution we're talking, I, I study in particular and improvement, is um, mostly has to do with mechanization, as you pointed out. And also um, with improving plants or improving species of plants and animals, so making them more productive. And then also with using fertilizer. So, um, for example, in the late 1800s, you have what's called the Bosch-Haber process, which is a German guy figured out basically how to distill nitrogen and use it um, as fertilizer. So go, let's go back to the very beginning. 
and let's look at a typical farm right before the Revolutionary War. What type of progressive farming they're doing or are not doing? Yes, great, great question. So um, I should I should state beforehand, my academic focus focuses on agriculture in the Northeast of the United States. So, you know, Maine, Massachusetts, all the way down to Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. You, you said right before the revolution? Mm-hmm. Okay, so like 1770s, most of your farmers, one, they're, again, this is a broad view, their agriculture, again, if it's in the Northeast, it's going to be above subsistence based, so it's you, you're going to have extra to feed yourself. You, you know, you're going to get by, and you're going to be feeding yourself and a few people in your community. But most of it is going to be very labor intensive. Horses and oxen are are around and they're used for agriculture. But for example, you don't really see much mechanization in agriculture. You don't see, besides the plow, you don't see many corn planters or drills or things like that, like that. So again, it's going to be very labor intensive. Again, it's folks are going to be providing most of what they need for themselves uh, in terms of food and fiber. You will see some farmers who would call themselves gentlemen farmers. So a very classic example of this would be Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you know, he liked to do experiments. And basically, usually the people that could experiment with, with newer methods, like uh, using bones for fertilizer or using um, uh, seed drills, for example, um, they're usually folks that have more wealth. And again, I focus more so in the North. So again, that's, those, are few, those folks are few and far between. Uh, they're really concerned with trying to make agriculture more efficient. So how do we get, for example, more eggs from our chickens? Well, for example, we could maybe feed uh, supplements, nutritional supplements, or how do we get the most milk from our cows? But again, your average person, I'd say like 90% or more, are just going to be farmers who have been doing what they've been doing since the Middle Ages. And does that include, are they keeping their fields fallow or are they stop that? Yes. For example, most farmers, again, are going to be doing, um, there's a, something in the 1300s, most in Europe, and it's called a three-field system. So you let some fields lay fallow. Yes. So they are bringing over some of their technology and things from the old world. And is anyone at this time practicing trying to improve say, the size of cows or the size of horses? Yes, yes. So, uh, yes, (laughs) thanks for asking that question. Yes, there are folks who are trying to, one, make um, animals larger, as we know that, um, like, if you come here to the museum, you can see our Red Devon cows. They're quite smaller, um, much smaller than our average uh, either beef or dairy cows. Um, So, yes, there are folks trying to make animals larger, Um, again, more efficient. So, like, how can you get a pig to get as fat as fast as possible? Horses run faster, things like that. Say again, 1770s, 1790s, there's only a very few select folks in the United States doing that. We're mostly copying what we see in Europe. So is that linked, you said they're mostly the wealthy who are involved in this. Is mm-hmm. that linked with also education levels? Yes. So, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I get excited. So education and also um, enlightenment theory. There's lots of enlightenment thoughts going around, you know, like rights of man and blah, 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 blah. But then there's also thoughts of, like, how can we make agriculture more scientific and also, therefore, more respectable? So, you know, traditionally, wealthier people would get a classics education. So Greek, Latin, a lot of memorization, you know, arts and things like that. Whereas scientific education, like, again, agriculture, physics, chemistry, those fields are very new. And um, the idea of applying 
uh, science to agriculture is, is really a new thing. Um, and that's kind of what's happening is enlightenment ideals and science. And people think, hey, we can put this to agriculture and make more food and more fiber and more fuel and basically have a higher standard of living for everyone. So what is the likelihood of an average farmer in the early 19th century being able to attend an agricultural college? And was it even worthwhile to get a degree? So we'll say in the 18, like, 40s and 50s and 60s. We'll talk about about then. I'll address the answer then because that's when agricultural colleges really start. So, uh, for example, again, just gives some background. They start in in states individually, but then when Abraham Lincoln creates the United States Department of Agriculture in 1861 and two, there is funding for state colleges through what's called the land grant. So, Penn State, Virginia Tech, Cornell. Uh, Ohio State, these are all land-grant universities. What is the likelihood of the average farmer? For the first few decades, it's elective, more well-to-do families that can send their son to college. And it's also going to be those, again, more wealthy, more educated, more well-to-do families that are even going to be interested in sending their son to a farm. And it's all men in the beginning. Again, because they're the folks that have these ideals of agriculture improvement and they're interested in uh, progressive technology and ideals but you see those numbers increase you know like today if you're say a a farmer in Pennsylvania where I'm from and you want to go to agriculture college other than the cost of you know needing student loans it is something that you can readily go to there are many agricultural colleges and um, tech schools growing up on a farm is it something that farmers need to do to go to college to keep up with the technology that's occurring right now, or is it more of a luxury? In my personal opinion, yes, it is. You will, like, I've had friends, you know, who grew up, they're like, oh, I don't need to go to college. And, you know, they can still farm and they can do fine. But in, in my experience and my observation, again, because the, the comp, it's so competitive to be a farmer nowadays. Like, you don't, you don't see people just, you know dropping everything to become a farmer because it's really capital intensive. And to your point, it takes a lot of specialized knowledge these days. Um, If if you're going to be a commercial farmer, if you want to have, you know, do what's called homesteading nowadays, which I think is great, have some chickens in your backyard and a big garden, that can be much less capital intensive. But if you're going to be a commercial farmer, it's kind of get big or get out, um, unfortunately. And I think the pendulum kind of has swung to the extreme of where you have to get so big. And that can create, in my, again, my, my opinion, problems with monopolies, you know, or um, corporations who don't really care about treating the environment so great or uh, treating their employees that great or the quality of their food because they're just concerned about getting the most out there and not the best quality. Uh, that's my opinion. <laughs> Some people may not like that opinion, but it is my opinion uh, from my experience. Now, Getting back, the I know the first U.S. Census was done in 1790. Mm-hmm. What was the percentage of people who classified as farmers? Um, about 90% of folks in the United States uh, with the first census were uh, farmers. I think agriculture is a great way to things to educate about is, is if today, for example, less than 2% of Americans are in production agriculture. In the past, you have mostly everybody is a farmer, right? And now today you have a very few people, again, less than 2% are feeding everybody else. So it's it's almost com- completely switched. 
Which is also interesting when you look at how much our population has risen, and yet we still manage to produce enough for the majority of people. If we don't take food waste or any other sorts of preferential food distribution into account. With that 2%. So is that directly related to this agricultural revolution in that time period that you focus on? Yes, it's directly related. So again, a lot of it has to do with mechanization and then... Um, uh, improve again improvement of animals and plants so getting them to be more efficient so again make um, tomatoes to have more tomatoes cows to give more milk you know like for example you know our milking red devon a historic breed she gives about three gallons a day of milk so that would be the the kind of cows that we see here at the museum and that folks at the time of the american revolution would have today a holstein can give you about seven to nine gallons so a hundred pounds of milk ish it's, it's quite a lot. <laughs> now, the question I have, because it seems that the goal is, as you get more efficient, there are less people farming. Is this a policy of the new U.S. government to try to get less people farming to enter into, say, manufacturing? Or is this something that is just happening with no further planning by any government organization? Yes, that's a great point. So this is kind of a, a silly thing and a contradiction about the agricultural Im improvement revolution in the late 1700s, the 1800s, is these policies, again, by state local and federal governments to do agriculture improvement, they're actually geared to try to get more people into farming or at least to stay in farming. So they don't leave, again, because of what you're talking about, the Industrial Revolution. So that's an, another thing to think about is while this agriculture revolution is going on, it's not happening in a vacuum. It's also happening while the um, Industrial Revolution is going to, is it a chicken or the egg? Are people leaving um, to go, like, for example, if I'm a young woman and I live in Massachusetts and I go to Lowell to work at the, the, um, the cotton mill, am I leaving because my agricultural labor is so hard? Like, because it's backbreaking? Like, I'm going to be kind of stuck there economically, you know, if I stay home and be like a farm wife and a farmer? Or am I leaving because I can get better wages at the mill? So it, it's kind of catch-22. Did that answer your question? It's a little bit because I'm also confused because we're also expanding westward. Yes. And as we're expanding westward, more farms are establishing. Uh -huh. So it would seem, I don't know, that it would probably be in the best policy to try to keep more people on the farms than out of the farms. Yes, yeah. I think another, some other reasons to, um, I, th I think why you see, again, state, federal, and local governments giving incentives toward agricultural improvement. For example, you see, again, especially in the Northeast, um, you see some here in the Upper South, like Virginia. In the late 1700s, they start agricultural improvement societies. The first one starts uh, in 1785 and is the Philadelphia Society for Promoting Agriculture. It has members like uh, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington is a member for a while. So one, you see the state and local folks, right, and, and governments putting money towards 
or it's, it's, it's private citizens, and then they, they convince governments to put money to help towards these ag societies. And then uh, in the 20s and the 30s, 1820s and 30s, you see an agricultural press really flowers and becomes its own thing. And then by the like 50s and 60s, you see states putting money towards agricultural colleges. But sorry, to bring this all together, part of the reason, you know, there's many reasons why governments and leaders in society want agricultural improvement. And one of them is they're really worried about America as a new nation getting a foothold in the global economy. So, for example, um, you see a lot of writings from this time period saying, you know, there's no way we could ever catch up with England or France or Germany industrially. So what we can do instead is we can make them dependent on us or at least highly needing us for food. You know, and again, think about those places have higher populations than we do in the U.S. and they have less land. Whereas you just said, we're expanding west. We have all this land. So that, of course, requires us to basically get rid of the Native Americans there, right? So that's another avenue we can go down sometime. I really think there's great evidence to show that uh, America is worried about getting a foothold in the in the capitalist marketplace. And also, again, remember, the British tried to come take us back in 1812. And you see a lot more letters after that, like, oh my gosh, what, you know, they just burned down our capital. How are we going to keep ourselves secure? One re- way we can do that is, again, by food, fiber, and fuel production. So, so the policy is more farms, not less farms. Yes, it, it, at least... If not more farms, then at least keeping folks on the farm because they're worried, again, um, that what if everyone goes to manufacturing? How are we going to feed ourselves? And then, like, that gives us a security blanket if we're exporting a bunch of grains and things to other factory workers (laughs) that are in Europe. Now, the other question I have as this is all going on, most of the South is enslaved. Most of the labor is done by enslaved people. Does that lead to agricultural innovation or because the labor is not paid for, people are reluctant to improve their their field production? Yes, that is an excellent question, Alex. Thanks for asking that. Again, so you do see agricultural improvement in the South, but it tends to be limited. And it's there's debate. You Again, you can see there's... There's journals like the Southern Planter, um, and there's a, a great guy if you want to look up the listeners, a guy called Edmund Ruffin. So there is debate of should we improve? You know, like for example, could we use fertilizer because cotton and tobacco kill the soil and they take out so much, so many nutrients we have to replace it somehow. So use fertilizer, or we could just move west to Georgia and Mississippi and Texas, you know, right and Missouri. So you see debate among planters. Um, and then there's also concerns, you also see in the writings, uh, people like Edmund Ruffin, who's very pro-slavery, says, no, if we improve agriculture, we can actually um, make our slaves more efficient. Does that make sense? Like, yes. teach them how to apply fertilizer or use machines. And then you'll see other planters say, no, 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 it would be dangerous for us to adopt mechanization because basically our slaves will be um, put out of work. Just kind of like today, like you see like car factories saying, oh, like we should get robots, (laughs) you know, and people say, no, we shouldn't get robots because then people won't have jobs. Again, that's a a very great topic for further, 
for further scholarship. Did that answer your question? It, it, it does. It's, it's a very interesting yeah. subject. All right. So we've talked about mechanization being important in this time period. What exactly is happening with that? What are the kinds of things that are being mechanized? Mechanization, I'll give you a really great example. I'd say you don't really see these till like the 30s and 40s, is a corn planter. Before this, small-time farmers, how are you planting your corn? You're going out and you're digging rows, you're dropping it in, and then you're covering it up. Or you have a little stick called a dribble stick. You um, make a little hole, you like drop the seed in, and that takes many, many hours. Um, and you're doing it again, walking in the fields, doing that by hand. 1840s, like 30s, 40s, 50s, you see the rise of corn planters, which is where you have a machine that will um, drill the little holes in the little furrow and then a little box, it's called a hopper. You put the corn seed in there and then you hook it up to a horse and you pull it through the field. Um, that's an example of large mechanization. You also see smaller examples of mechanization. For example, even just something as simple as turning butter for that, the, the farm wife, you will see instead of doing the dasher, putting the dasher up and down to make butter, you will see instead it will be um, a crank. You will, you will crank or even there's mechanisms where it's kind of like Newton's cradle, basically that, con that concept um, to turn butter. One of the biggest innovations took place really very close to right here, um, and that's the mechanical reaper. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. So again, gosh, it escaped me right now what year that happened. Um, but yes, again, by Cyrus McCormick, he kind of perfected it, but there seems to be good evidence that his father actually kind of did some of the, the early work on it. So again, one thing about the reaper is they're a great tool where, for example, it will cut the wheat down or whatever, or even hay um, for you, but they tend to be not very effective here on the East Coast because there's too many mountains and the fields are too small and there's lots of trees and stumps. So where you see reapers being most effective and why Cyrus McCormick moved his plant to Chicago, um, you see these reapers being most effective and treasured on in the, in the Midwest because Ohio, Iowa, it's, it's flat, right? <laughs> so farmers really love to take those out there. So again, so there's great improvements. And again, those things like the reaper will help farmers do less like physical back baking labor, like swinging a scythe or a sickle. But there's also downsides to these mechanizations where, one, they're usually costly and expensive. So like today, if we, you know, go buy the latest electric car or something, it's a new thing and it might be more fuel efficient, but it's usually costly. Two, you're going to get probably some, if you're a regular farmer, right, doing this, let's say um, you're Farmer Alex and I'm Farmer Naomi, and I see you go out and buy a corn planter, I might give you some side eye because it's, again, it's expensive, it's a new thing, just be, I'm like, well, look at Alex, you know, like, he, who does he think he is, <laughs> you know, so there's, you know, there's a lot of questions around this technology. Also, it's pretty buggy. Like, you see a lot of correspondence back and forth between, for example, um, McCormick would have, like, basically, he called them agents. Basically, tech support would come and help set up your Reaper. And if you have problems, you could write him and his, his agents. You know, you see, also, you see horses being scared of the machines uh, because they make a lot of noise. Um, they're not trained for that. So, again, there's a financial risk, a moral risk, <laughs> where your your neighbors may see you as irresponsible, like you're putting your family and your like in danger, like financial danger. Like if you sink, say, like one hundred fifty dollars 
into this new machine. And then there's also a social risk because you're, again, your family might, you know, your neighbors might think you're a little, trying to be the coolest cat on the block. <laughs> right. And then I, I guess the other big thing is a mechanical threshing machine. Um, that comes out about the same time as the Reaper. I think so, yes. I, I can't, sorry, I don't remember the decades. It's been a while since I've looked at precise dates, but maybe at least a little later. Yes. And again, that will help a thresher, mechanical thresher will help separate the grain from the chaff, so the wheat from the straw. And again, um, I've led lots of individual farmers' accounts in their diaries and things that'll say, we set up the thresher, it worked okay, but then, you know, this, this wheel fell off, or the horse didn't want to go on the, um, the treadle, or then the horse ran away and bucked and, you know, we gave up. And then one last thing is <laughs> we know in agriculture, it's essential. Like, for example, if you're trying to cut down your grain, right, your, your, your wheat, you have short windows, especially in the summer with thunderstorms and things like that, to get that grain off. Because maybe it's going to thunderstorm and it'll ruin your crop. And going on the same, I was thinking of the, because they keep doing improvements on it they become so popular that they change the style of barns the, because you you have to have well one when it's a horse going around in a circle to charge the belts you got to have a place to do that then it eliminates the threshing floor and then they throw it all into the combine soon yeah uh-huh. and that's all happening within 30 years yeah that's yeah <laughs> but yeah another even you brought up the how this technology even changed the architecture of the barns, another place, a big way you see that is with hay forks and hay, like hay racks. Um, that's a little later, like in the 1800s, but it actually, you actually like, like you need a beam directly above in the center of your barn to put a hay rack on. So you'd pick up the hay with these big fork things, pull it up with a pulley, and then shoot it down this rack kind of like a, like a zip line towards the hay mow. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, this technology really changes buildings. It changes how people work, changes how we use animals. Uh, it changes how much food we have, how much it costs. And basically the end result of all of this changes and improvements is you need a lot less people who can farm a lot more, which changes society because all of a sudden these people can then go and work in factories. Exactly. Yes. Uh-huh. Or they can write poetry or make music or yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that there was some resistance at first among smaller farmers to the new uh, applications. And again, that's because not only is it the cost of the equipment, it's also the cost of, again, changing your infrastructure, changing what you've got to actually be working with. So how does that actually get overcome? Great question. Sorry, I'm really excited. (laughs) So this is like the main focus of my academic research. I would say, how does that change? How does that overcome? It takes time. In the United States, I argue that um, there's a lot of great evidence for there's a specific kind of rhetoric and reasoning and sort of, and I call it Georgic rhetoric, so Georgic based on the poems. The classic Greek poet, um, he has basically writes about um, the relationship between man and nature um, in his poems in in classic Greece. Anyways, how does that is overcome? Again, I, I argue through this through this employment of this rhetoric or this these, this line of reasoning. And that line of reasoning is, you see here in America, is that essentially the more you produce as a farmer, that makes you the most, a more virtuous citizen. Um, and 
these ideas, like if you've ever heard statements like, oh, farmers are the backbone of our society, or, you know, like they're the hardest workers out there, or things like that. It's, it's all these ideas about pumping up farmers that if they work harder and use these new efficient methods that can help lead to abundancy, that can help lead to security, and that security, because you're helping provide yourself, your family, your community, and your country with abundancy and security, that means you're a virtuous person because you're, and this all ties in with ideals of um, a republic and democracy and that you as an individual citizen have responsibility to, you know, to go out and do things like vote, to educate your children, you know, to show up to school board meetings, but you also have to go to church, <laughs> but you also have responsibilities. Like if you're a farmer, to do the best job you can. It's very, very interesting. And looking at our museum, because we're showing homes from many, many farms, it is very interesting how they all change to the changes that take place in the late 18th into the 19th century. So our English farm stays a farm and stays a farm to the present day. It's in a very good location. I believe our Irish and German farms will go out of business. They're small and cannot compete Mm -hmm. with the new changes. When you look at our two American farms, the 1820s farm stays a farm. The 1850s farm, its heyday is in the 1850s and it goes into a decline and the land is no longer being farmed. Mm -hmm. And that all deals with the simple fact that if you're gonna compete with the farmers who are buying all this machinery, you have to be more productive but there's a point where the land cannot keep up with the new machinery and the new yeah the new methods yeah. without them going bankrupt. Yes, and that that again, as we we talked at, at at the beginning, you know about how American Revolution about ninety percent of folks are in farmers today. It's less than two percent. Um, that's kind of the outworking of that improved efficiency, and that ultimately ag improvement kind of killed what it was meant to save. If that makes sense. And it killed it, 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 it killed agriculture in the sense that we got so efficient that people didn't need to be on the farm anymore. And, or, or they chose not to be. <laughs> and again, it's a chicken and the egg. Was it people, we got so efficient, people could leave? Or was it people were leaving, so we had to get more efficient? Ultimately, people voted with their feet, and they left the countryside, and they you know, moved to towns and cities. And the question I have, and this goes to the farm that you grew up in, uh, has it changed? over your lifetime? Has it become more modernized or are these improvements still happening today? Yes. So for example, uh, we could talk about how my, when my mom was a child in the 60s, um, she remembers, this was on her farm, but it connects to what I'm about to say. She grew up on a dairy farm as, as I did. She remembers getting a pipeline for milk. Before she, before, when she was a really little girl, they milked the cows by hand and then took the pails into a big thing that's called a bulk tank. It's a big stainless steel tank, and they did that by hand. When she was a child, they got a pipeline where you hook the machines up to the cows, and the milk never touches any human hands. And, like, for another example, when I was a kid, I remember something that we did is we got a combine. So if you know know what combines are, that's a machine that will harvest your grains, sort out the chaff, and then you say if it's wheat, you have a truck file behind you and you dump that wheat into a, a, a little dump truck or tractor trailer that'll take it to somewhere where it'll take it to somewhere to be turned into bread or something. 
combines cost a lot of money. They're like a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> They're the same cost as a house. Um, another improvement I remember that we made, we started doing no-till, for example. So that requires, you know, using less diesel, putting less emissions in the air. Also, something that we started doing when my dad was a kid was um, strip tillage, where again, where if you have a, a farm or a field on the side of a hill, you put in strips of different crops so you don't have erosion. My parents have also been looking into getting what's called a methane digester uh, for several years if they can make it work. Basically, you put a tarp over your manure pit and then that will catch the methane and turn it into electricity and the farm could be self-sufficient. Yeah, there's so much new technology. What about computers? Yes, that's another thing we do. Uh, like, for example, to track all our animals, we keep health records for them. If they have any medicines, any vet visits, we also have, uh, we give them basically earrings. We basically pierce their ears um, and that has like a, what's called an RFID, radio frequency identification device. You can go up with a little reader like you would use at the grocery store and go beep and that will bring up that animal's all of her health records when she's had any vaccinations, things like that. Now, here it goes, the big question. Yeah. Would a farmer from our 1770 farm recognize your farm or would he be so completely baffled by it, he would have no clue? That's a great question. I think some things he would be baffled by, by like, you know, like the technology, the tractors, you know, again, like the pipeline, things like that. But some things are still very much the same. Waking up early <laughs> to tend to your animals, uh, the weather uh, ruining your plans if you're trying to, you know, say cut hay or, you know, plant some corn. Other things would be the same, like cows giving birth or, you know, getting pooped on by a cow um, or by an animal. Some things like that are very much the same. Do you see the family farm as something that's dying out and that we're going to just have corporate farms in the future? Sadly, yes. Here's a statement to make. About 97% of all farms in the U.S. are family-owned. It's just they're much larger than they used to be. So, for example, like my family, my parents had it, and now there's multiple children involved, you know. So now it includes my sister's family, my brother's family, and my other brother's family, you know, plus employees. So farms are much bigger than, you know, than they used to be. You know, again, we said 90% of people at the time of the revolution are farmers. Now it's 2%. But, but in all... Like, again, 97% of farms are still owned by families, not by corporations. However, what usually tends to happen is once the produce, whatever you're producing, leaves the farm, that's when it tends to get more into corporate hands. Does that make sense? For example, my farm will grow a wheat and then we sell it. Again, it's family production, but then it goes towards a corporation. Or we make uh, soybeans for ethanol, which is put in our gasoline or our milk. You know, there are co-ops, you know, like farmer-owned co-ops, which I think are a great thing. Yeah, I think things are struggling. Another thing to bring up is, or we don't have to bring this up, but um, the age of the average American farmer is getting pretty old. Last time I checked, I think it was like 65 or 67. So we need new people interested in ag, and I think we need to talk about it and find ways to get them interested in ag. But I do find hope because you something I see a lot these days is People with no agricultural roots, you know, um, or at least any recent agricultural roots, everybody has, everybody, everyone has been a farmer in their past. <laughs> they're at least a great, 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 whatever, because we all had, we used to grow our own food. It's just regular folks will be like, 
you know, I had someone in, in my church be like, hey, how do I grow a garden? Or like, have you ever had chickens? Or like, you know, some neighbors down my street got backyard chickens. Uh, there seems to be so much interest in, you know, growing your own food, food sovereignty, knowing where your food comes from, teaching your children about how to grow it, how to cook it. And I think that can only be a good thing. I think the, the museum here can be a great place because one, we can look at history and get people interested in the past, but we can also use it as a space to get people interested about agriculture right now. Like, think about every time you eat, like, where did that food come from? What did it take to grow it? How can we grow this food more efficiently? Or perhaps maybe so we have less environmental impact. Or so it's not something where, you know, it, if it's like avocados or something, you know, <laughs> that are connected to like drug cartels. Uh, I think the museum can be a, a place to think about and talk, begin conversations because we have to talk about where's our food and our fiber and fuel come from. At least start talking about how do we solve problems of tomorrow with insights from the past. All right. Well, well thank you very much, Naomi. You're welcome. So we hope you enjoyed Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds. We bring you historical episodes twice a month. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in the area, be sure to check out the Frontier Culture Museum's Evening Lantern Tours. These are two-hour evening walking tours by Lantern Light, where you'll be entertained in several of the historic buildings by holiday sketches. Tickets are on sale now, and they go fast. Be sure to reserve your preferred date and time soon. Thank you for listening.